Today we are concluding a series. Is it as loud to you as it is to me? This, is, this seems really loud to me. Okay. We're concluding a series today that we've been in for the last six weeks, and the series title has been A Spirit of Generosity. Today we're going to be specifically talking about generosity in the aspect of power. And uh, we've been talking about the currencies that we have within our life, which is a, uh, a medium of exchange of value, and we've talked about the currencies of forgiveness and uh, uh, talents and time and hospitality and money and how we deal with our wealth and, and where that fits within, thing, uh, within the priorities of our life. And today, there's a passage of Scripture that, uh, in Luke that we're going to begin to evaluate today that I believe has a lot to do. Now, on the surface, you might think it's dealing with money, but as we unpack it, I believe that you'll be able to see with me that there's far more depth there than uh, you may have originally thought. And so I'm going to ask that you would turn to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. For those of you that have grown up in the church, you may be familiar with the story of Zacchaeus. And if you haven't, then you're about to enter into a fascinating narrative that has a lot to teach us today. Beginning with verse 1 in chapter 19 of Luke, it says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he began to run ahead, and he climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once, and he welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost." Our Father in God, we recognize today that our ability to understand and interpret and apply Scripture is solely leaning upon the Holy Spirit's ability to reveal truth to us. And so we ask for the anointing of the Holy Spirit that you would lead us and guide us in the avenues of Scripture so that we can be more like you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I have most of the weeks, I want to give credit to the fact that much of this study that we have done has come from some of the work of Tim Keller and Earl Ellis. They have been tremendous resources that I've had to study as I've gone through this. Earl Ellis, in the commentary that he wrote, titled this particular passage of Luke as The Conversion of a Rich Politician. The conversion of a rich politician, which I found pretty interesting that this, this past week we uh, finally got off the TV commercials of all of the politicians that were seeking to influence you. Begins to speak of Zacchaeus, who was a man who was both wealthy and powerful. And he does something about both his wealth and his power. And in order for us to really see what the text is telling us uh, about the way that we handle things, we need to see how it relates to Jesus. And so when you see how Jesus relates to this text you suddenly begin to see what it's telling us about money and power. And the point of this text is to tell us that when you come to know Jesus, you get converted. 
When you come to know Jesus, you get converted. Zacchaeus doesn't only get information about Jesus or become inspired by Jesus, but his whole life gets revolutionized. Why? Because in his interaction with Jesus, he becomes converted, and it changes everything. And so let's look in this text. There's four things that I'd like us to notice this morning, and if you have your bulletins, there's an outline there for those of you that would like to draw up some notes. The four things I want us to see are the necessity of conversion, the circumstances of conversion, the key to conversion, and the sign you have been converted. First of all, brief but importantly, is the necessity of conversion. At the end of this account, Jesus looks at Zacchaeus in verse 9 of Luke 19, and he says to him, Today, salvation has come to this house. And then right after that, he said, For the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. For many people today, and especially within the culture that we live in in America, the idea of somebody becoming converted would be like, we automatically think of the worst of the worst or as far away from Christ as you can get, which in many people's mind today would be radical terrorist Muslims. For one of them to come to Jesus, we would say, that's conversion. That's massive. That's, that's huge. But What we fail to understand is that regardless of where we have come from, unless we encounter Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter how big the opposite may be, but every one of us needs that encounter with Jesus that brings a conversion within our life that changes us from who we were to who he wants us to be. And it says within this that Jesus said, salvation has come to this house. And the reason that we know that conversion doesn't necessarily have to be from the worst of the worst, at least the way that we would classify evil in our mind, is that Jesus in John chapter 3, verse 3, is having a conversation with Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus would not fit in our minds, if we were to know him today, as the worst of the worst. In fact, he would be a good man. He would be somebody that you would think just on the basis of goodness would be all right. And Jesus has this conversation with him and says to him, No one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Now, did you notice the words no one? Do you know that you and I are no ones within this? In other places, we're whosoever's. But within this passage, we are the no ones. None of us can get to Jesus regardless of your past or how good or bad you think you are. None of us can do it without being born again. We all need to be converted. This means that you can't just know about Jesus a little bit. Jesus doesn't just inspire you. He doesn't just inform you. When you have a relationship with Jesus, he converts you. He changes you. So I have to ask you this morning, are you converted? Have you been saved? Is it possible for you to say, yes, I have been born again, that Jesus has transformed my life, and I have been converted? At this point, we need to understand that Jesus didn't come to make you a nicer or better version of your broken self. He came to make you new. Oh, I thought somebody would say amen to that. C.S. Lewis says niceness, wholesome personality. It's an excellent thing. But we must not suppose that even if we succeeded in making everyone nice that we have saved them. 
Mere improvement is not redemption. Redemption always improves people, even here and now, and will, in the end, improve them to a degree that we cannot yet imagine. God became a man, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, to produce, but to produce a new kind of man. It's not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but it's like turning a horse into a winged creature. So the first point that we have to deal with as we approach this scripture is do you know Jesus and has Jesus got a hold of your life and are you converted? Because if not, then he's come to seek and save those which are lost. And I'm glad you're here today because I'm going to introduce you to Jesus. And immediately from that, we run into a second point. When we think of conversion, we often think of somebody who's desperate. And we look at the circumstances of this, and they're a little different. I have discovered through the years of ministry that desperate people, when they come to Christ, often it's in a situation like this. I've done everything that I can possibly do. I don't know what I'm I'm at the end of my rope. I have no other options. And so finally, with no other options, I'm going to run to Jesus, and I want Jesus to fix everything for me. And I've discovered that desperate people, when they come to Christ, oftentimes, in the process of trying to get to know him, circumstances change. And if desperation is the reason that you came to Christ, sometimes when the circumstances get better, your commitment to Christ diminishes. Because desperation made you hope for a better outcome. It wasn't Jesus you were after. You just wanted the circumstances changed. And sometimes desperate people don't allow full conversion, but they just want the circumstances better. So when we look at this passage of Scripture, we're recognizing that Zacchaeus is not desperate. Why did he go to see Jesus? How did his conversion story start? Well, he wanted to see Jesus because Jesus was a celebrity and he was curious. He wanted to see what was going on. And so he had heard all these things about him. He's curious, and his curiosity led him to his conversion. In fact, if you look at this, you'll notice that he was both curious and persistent. Curious and persistent. And if you don't know Jesus today, if you're not in a relationship, I'm glad today that you're curious enough to come to church, and I pray that you'll be persistent enough to do what you need to do in order to be introduced to this majestic God that is a giver when he comes into our life. He was persistent because Zacchaeus and I have a little something in common. Both of us are on the lower end of the height scale. And so the circumstances were, there is a crowd that is gathering around. Jesus is coming. People are rushing to the front. And those of us who may be on the shorter end of the scale recognize that it would have been hard for them to see. Now, I, I may have the tallest staff in the state of New York. <laughs> Pastor Mark, would you join me for a moment here? Between, between Pastor Mark and Pastor Jeff, then, you know, 6'3", six, 6'4", six, and, and Pastor Julie may be taller than me for all I know. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't stood next to her for a while, but... I want you to picture this scene. So, so there's this crowd, Zacchaeus being a shorter guy, you would think that all he would have had to do is say, can I stand in front of you? Now, if, if Mark was in this crowd, he would say, sure, you can stand in front of me. You know why? Because I'm not blocking his view. <laughs> he can still see Jesus. 
Thank you, you can sit down. So when you look at the passage and you think, Zacchaeus being a short man, why didn't he just make his way through the crowd? It might be because they hated him. If he comes to them and says, oh, can I get in front of you? They're thinking, you know, you're just about elbow height. I can pop you right in the nose and in a crowd. Nobody will know I did that. And because he was despised and because he was hated, he recognized his ability to get through the crowd, to get to the front of the line was zero. In fact, it tells us in verse 7 how everybody felt about him when it said, everybody muttered, he's a sinner. Now, when you're in a crowd and the Bible says, the Bible is without error, everybody muttered, you're thinking that's not 98%, that's 100%. The people out there that are just thinking, I'm not letting him in front of me. So this short person goes up a tree. Now, I want you to think about the persistence that it took to do this. Because this short person happens to be a very, very prominent businessman who was so interested in getting to see Jesus that he humiliated himself. And he climbs up the tree, and, and if you think about it, as he's climbing up the tree, based on the type of clothing they wore, he may have given them a very interesting and revealing view. Now, don't think about that for too long. The point is that he was persistent. He wasn't desperate, but he was intellectually open, he was curious, and he was persistent. The late Kenneth Clark, he was the producer of the BBC series Civilization, tells a very sad story in his biography. He said that he was living in France, and at one point he actually went into a church, and as he listened to just the Scripture being read... He said, I instantly was arrested in my heart and I knew I was having an encounter with God. I knew God was real and I knew God was seeking me. And then he says, as wonderful as that experience was, it caused an awkward problem in terms of action. Because if I were to follow through on this, I would have to reform and change. My family would think I was going mad. So gradually... The effect wore off, and I made no effort to retain it. You see, the reason that Kenneth Clark didn't pursue what God was drawing him to is because he knew the crowd would ridicule him. The crowd being his family, the crowd being the people he worked with. And as he waited in the balance, he recognized that he would rather not face their ridicule than rather allow Jesus to convert him. So the one thing you have to have is you have to have a heart that will remain intellectually open and persistent, and you can't be afraid of the crowds smirking you. We as the church need to understand those without him will smirk. Those without Christ will laugh. They will mock. It's what they do because they are unconverted. But we who are converted recognize it is a small price to pay for the joy of knowing Jesus. Brings us to the third point of the key to the conversion. And Luke, Luke lays this out so clearly in storytelling. He, 
This is great narrative writing. And, and let me quote from the commentator Earl Ellis. He says, if you look at verse 5 and 9, you see it. Here is the key to conversion. Every other religion, if you want to be saved, you have to do these things. And that is the reason why no religion can ever say, salvation has come. Jesus says, you are saved. You have been saved. Jesus is the only God who can talk about salvation in the past tense. Other religions can't do that because their salvation is a matter of what you do. And of course, the more you do, the more you recognize you can never do enough to have salvation. Whatever the religion says that you must do to find God, you never can complete it. Thus, you live a life that is never fulfilled. That is why salvation is only a process without Christ that you never reach the finish line. Because there's never a place where you can arrive and say, I am saved. That is what is absolutely life-changing when Jesus states to Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house. Salvation, he's declaring, is not a process. Salvation is a person. And Jesus said, it is me. I am salvation. The process is over. Salvation has arrived. David Lloyd-Jones is a pastor who began to ask questions of his congregation. He says, kind of helping me to diagnose whether or not my, my congregation understood what biblical salvation was really about. And so he would ask them, are you willing to say that you are a Christian? And very often he would say, people would say back, well, I would like to think that I'm a Christian, but I do not feel that I am good enough. And at that he would write, I would tell them at once, I knew that they had no idea what it means to be a Christian. Because it sounds very modest when we say, I don't think I'm good enough, but it is a denial of the faith to say that. And then he would reply to his congregant, you are not good enough. No one has been good enough. You will never be good enough. Because the essence of Christian salvation is that Jesus is good enough and I am in him. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! And this comes across beautifully in Luke here when, when Jesus says, and I am coming to your house. And then in verse 9, Jesus says, salvation has come to your house. Jesus is saying, it's in me. When you find me, you find salvation. And in salvation is conversion. Earl Ellis says it this way. What Luke is telling you is that where Jesus is present, salvation is present. Jesus doesn't point you to the way of salvation. He says, I am it. It is in me. So Jesus is saying in this, you can't save yourself. You are incapable of saving yourself. So if you want salvation, you have to embrace me, Jesus says. You have to rest in me. You have to take me on. That is it. That is is being born again, and that is salvation. Also found within this text is that Christianity is different than other religions in the order in which you relate to God. Notice that Jesus has this conversation with Zacchaeus when he's up into a, a tree, 
And he says, I am coming to your house. And as modern Americans, we don't realize the context of what it meant. Now, if you were here earlier in the series when we were, we were talking about hospitality, the generosity of hospitality, we laid out biblically that when you invited somebody to your house, to your home, that it was done in the aspect that wasn't just a dinner party. You were inviting them into your life, that there was a... a, a an idea of this friendship is going to last. Now, in the business sense, it was because I believe that you can get me where I want to go, and they are accepting your invitation based on the fact that they think that you can help them. And God is saying we need to do that from a much purer heart, and that just in recognition of, of hospitality to develop these friendships. So, so when Jesus looks at Zacchaeus in the tree and says, I'm coming to your house, everybody that's there, the crowd that is murmuring, recognizes that Jesus is saying to the worst sinner in town, I want to be your friend. I want a relationship with you. He's offering the real thing to the tax collector. I mean, that's why the Bible says that they're sinners and tax collectors because that's like, it's down there. And here's the interesting thing. Jesus in that account doesn't look up and say, you know, Zacchaeus, if you'll just clean up your life a little bit. While you're on the way down from the tree, if you'll just do a few things, that by the time you hit the ground, maybe it'll be a little bit easier. He doesn't address anything in his life. He doesn't say you have to get yourself ready. He, he basically says there's nothing you can do. I'm not waiting for you to change before I have relationship with you. I want relationship with you, and as a result of that, you change. And the people that were standing around recognized the significance of this. Jesus says, I am coming into your life, and I am loving you first. And as a result of me coming, and as a result of me loving, your life changes. There's an old song that says, "'Tis not that I did choose thee, for, Lord, that cannot be. This heart would still refuse thee if thou hadst not chosen me. My heart owns none before thee, for thy rich grace I thirst, this knowing, if I love thee, thou must have loved me first." Jesus Christ in his radical grace changes the order and loves you with a radical grace that changes you and forgives you when you can do nothing to earn it. Just as I am, without one plea, he calls you from the tree and says, don't change first. I'll do that work when you get here. That's why there's such wonder and joy in loving and serving Jesus. There was a song this morning. We're talking about he gives us the breath to be able to praise him. Don't, don't you love that he gives us the ingredients that we need in order to give him back something? Because we have nothing on our own that we can offer him. He says, I'll give you the breath. Would you just offer it back to me in praise? Now that should make you emotional. For all of you really, really quiet people like me, it should give you the ability to cry out, Oh, hallelujah, what a Savior! It makes praise come alive. Here's what I want you to be convicted about because I've been convicted about it. Why was Zacchaeus so moved? Why did it affect him so much? Because this man was up in a tree and Jesus recognized him and he knew Jesus Christ was bearing the disdain of the crowd for his sake. 
He was amazed that Jesus Christ would love him at the cost of his own reputation in front of a crowd. So what about you and me? We know that the crowd got a lot more hostile and that to love you and me, Jesus took all of that hostility and he loved us all the way to the cross. He didn't just love you and me at the cost of his reputation. He loved you and me at the cost of his own life. Not just the disdain of the crowd, but he bore the death of the crowd. And if the knowledge of Jesus' costly love changed Zacchaeus' life radically, how much more should that knowledge change the way that we live, knowing his costly love for us? See, Zacchaeus came down from a tree, but Jesus Christ went up on a tree. Jesus bore the disdain of the crowd, and later he bore the weight of the sin of the world. So this is what the key is of conversion. This is what it means to be saved. This is what it means to be transformed. I come to Jesus as I am, and I walk inside of him. He surrounds me, and in him I'm changed. Not that I just recognize him. Oh, I know there's a God. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying, do you know him and live in him? That's conversion. What then is the sign of conversion? Zacchaeus goes through an amazing life change, and he's changed by the grace of God. And here is what it says in in, in verse 8. Lord, look, or look, Lord. Here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay four times the amount. Now, I want you again to recognize the circumstances. He is surrounded by people that hate him because he has cheated them. He's publicly proclaiming in front of all of them, I'm going to make this right. They're all listening to this going, oh, yeah, you cheated me. I I love the fact that he said, if I have cheated anybody, when everybody that's there is going, absolutely, you cheated me. And there's a lot in here. First of all, when Jesus responds to Zacchaeus and said, today salvation has come to your house, he's not saying that as a response. In other words, when Zacchaeus says, I'm going to give money back to everybody, Jesus doesn't say, salvation is coming to your house because he gave the money back. I want you to see the order of this. He's saying salvation has come to the house because in the moment of conversion, the first thought that Zacchaeus had was generosity. Because the spirit of Christ is a spirit of generosity. And so the first sign of his conversion is his generosity, and that's the proof that something had changed within his life. And you and I must know, until we grasp the power and the weight of the grace of God, when you do that, if it doesn't change your attitude toward money and generosity, then I will question the reality of your conversion. Because our God is a generous God, and when he dwells within us, he's generous in all of these things. Secondly, we look at the numbers that Zacchaeus chose. Many of us know that in the Old Testament, which Zacchaeus would have been familiar with, that the requirement was to give 10% of your income. We talked a little bit about that the last couple of weeks as an, an Old Testament standard of tithe, and whether or not that moves into the New Testament and We believe that there's scripture proof to indicate that 10% becomes the floor because we live in a time of greater blessing, greater grace, greater revelation. And Zacchaeus says he's going to give 50%. And then he says, if I've cheated anybody, I'm going to restore what I've taken. And and 
during his day and age, 20% interest would have been given back, and that would have been sufficient. And he said, I'm going to give 400% back. And, and this tells us quite a bit about Zacchaeus' understanding of money and power and how his motivation was changed in his conversion moment. He knew what 10% was all about. But in his conversion moment, when he begins to speak out, and I'm going to give half of what I have, he understands that he's not just giving money, he's also giving away power. This aspect in his mind, and, and you'll notice when people say, well, Jesus doesn't want us to tithe, that's done away. If, you'll notice Jesus didn't tell him no when he said, I'm going to give away 50%. Jesus said, oh, no, 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 that's Old Testament. Well, I'm going to make things right way above what I should. Jesus doesn't tell him no. In fact, he encourages him in all those things. Because at conversion, a spirit of generosity begins to flow. Here's what I think. Money and power are very closely associated to one another, and we need to be honest about it, and generally we aren't. Money is power. The more money you have, the more control of the world you have, and the more in control of the world in the world you are. The more money you have, the more lands and possessions you probably have, which gives you control, a little bit more control, and stuff to have power over. The more money you have, the more in control you are in the world, because you recognize that the more money I have, the less vulnerable I become to things that it takes money to get me out of. So you think, the more I sock away, the less vulnerability I, I have, and so that gives me power. The more money you have, the more freedom that you have. You can go where you want, and you can live where you want. The more money you have, the more freedom you have to dress the way you desire, to travel where you want to go, to participate in activities that you enjoy doing. If the snow gets too deep here, you can just go south. I don't say that to guilt any of you. But we understand that money is power. And it looks to me that Zacchaeus realizes something. He recognizes that for him to give away 10% would for him have been an excess. Now we live in a day and age where if you are giving 10%, if you're, if you're walking obedient and, and you're giving 10% of your income away, for most people you are starting to give away some power. Here's the way that generally works within our mind. First we say, here's what I can afford to give away. And, and we rationalize it this way. I can afford to give this much because if I give this much, it doesn't affect my power. It doesn't make me more vulnerable, so this is what I can give. And then we get to a place where as Christ's generous spirit begins to rise up within us, we begin to look at things a little bit differently and we recognize that Christ sometimes calls us to greater sacrifice. Now sacrifice means that we begin to be more generous to the point where we are giving away our ability and are giving away our power to control our own life and the more vulnerable we become by the more we give away, the more opportunity we have to understand that Christ is truly all in all. Because money and power will always stand as an alternate God to Jesus Christ. He says you can't serve both those things. So which one's going to have the power in your life? So we look at this and we say he's talking about money, but we're really talking about power. And Zacchaeus recognized that in order for me 
to demonstrate my conversion, I instantly have to begin to divest myself of stuff that I have leaned on that's given me my identity and given me my ability to not be vulnerable. And so I'm going to give away more than is necessary because Christ converted me. Also within this area of power is this. Some of you live in situations where you have tremendous influence with others. I believe that as Christians, the way that we use our power is to, when the Lord taps you on the shoulder and indicates to you, you are an open door for somebody that you might be able to give them opportunities. And in the culture in which we live, we close the door and say, that power is mine. I will not be challenged. I don't want anybody around me who can threaten me in this. And as a child of God, we begin to recognize that the power that we have, as we give it away to the Lord, we look for others who might be better at things than we are and give them opportunities to show that. Because our identity is no longer tied in our position. Our identity is tied in who we live in, Christ. And so rather than fighting for something here, we're opening doors and the Lord says, Generosity includes finding ways that you can use your power of influence to give others opportunities that maybe nobody gave you, but Christ is giving you the opportunity to give to somebody else. Which means we have to fight the old system of, well, I had to pay my dues. But when we're converted, the spirit of generosity of Christ living within us begins to bubble up and percolate in all these areas and we suddenly are no longer worried about protection because in Christ all of our vulnerabilities are taken care of and we look for opportunity. How can I elevate others around me? Let me tell you how we know that this is what happens when we become converted. When you realize that the only reason that you are saved is because Jesus Christ lost all his power for your benefit. One of his intrinsic qualities is his omnipotence, which means he has all power. Everything was within his control. Jesus gave that up to become a human being. We're about to celebrate Christmas and in a little over a month, and we're going to talk about that and be reminded again of the massive sacrifice of power that he gave up for our benefit to come incarnate, God with us in the form of a human being. He gave all that up for us. He gave up the power to defend himself at his arrest and trial when he could have said anything and cleared the room. He gave up his ability, he gave up his power and offered his own body as a sacrifice to die for all of our wrongs and sins when he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. And he lost all of his power so that you and I would have the only power that really matters. And we find that in John chapter 1, verse 12. I'm going to reiterate a passage that Pastor Mark read earlier. Yet... To all that receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right. Now that term right also can be interpreted power. He gave the power to become children of God. He opened the door for us. He didn't defend himself. He said, I'm going to use my authority to, to, raise, to raise up those around me so that they can become joint heirs with me with all the benefits that I have and we are now heirs to the king there's power 
the power that you need, the safety that you need, the security that you've been looking for, all the freedom that you need, God will always call those whom he converts to give until we are disturbed by the power that we're willing to give away because he demonstrated it first. And Zacchaeus recognized this instantly at his conversion. That in order to demonstrate the change in him, the first thing he gave up was that which gave him power. And he willingly did so. Zacchaeus was a corrupt capitalist who had made money by misusing power and influence over others, and Jesus loves him. One of the things that I love about it is Jesus loved him just as he was. How many times have you had conversations with people that say, well, I'm not good enough for Jesus. I, you know, I, there's so many things in my life Jesus could never accept me. And you, and you want to lovingly slap them across the face is, if there is the such thing and say, no, 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 no. This is what Jesus does takes you right there he takes you where you are and he changes you because of himself not changing to get ready for him the questions that I ask in conclusion are this are you converted how has it affected your life how has it affected your goals how has it affect your generosity do you have a pervasive, radical spirit of generosity that Jesus has? How's it look in your relationships as we talked about six weeks ago? Is there within you, because of your conversion, a radical nature to forgive others? Not carrying a grudge, and I'm going to let that go. Regardless of how deep the hurt, Jesus bore much more hurt than that. And he says, because you live in me, my ability to forgive you should manifest itself in your ability to forgive others anything. How about in hospitality? We talked about the generous spirit of finding strangers and bringing them into our home places. Some can bring them to your home, others to restaurants that you like to go to, others bring them to church with you. That just places where you feel comfortable, you reach out to strangers and bring them in knowing that they are longing for that same peace that you already have. And Jesus said, if you'll do that with a generous spirit, I'm going to turn some of them into lifelong friends. Some of them are going to come to know me. What about the currency of your talents and your time? I can't tell you how many times we say this. Oh, if I only had the time, I would... And the Lord says, when you're converted, I rearrange the priorities so that I'm first. The big thing's going first, and then all the filler comes in around that. But only if you let me do that, because when you're converted, the priorities change. What about the opportunities of your wealth? Is money a God to you as it was to the rich young ruler? who when confronted with the fact that though he had lived a good life, it was not good enough, and the one thing that he had, he said, I'm sorry, but Jesus, my money, my reputation, and my name are more important to me than peace with you. What about the aspect when the Lord speaks to us about the generosity of wealth, and he says, here's what I want you to know, that there's no investment you can make on earth that will ever eternally go up in value, but if you give into the kingdom, if you give into the things that the word of God states that you should, if you honor God on all these things, that what happens is the lives of those whom you touch 
who come to know me as a result of that will be the ones lining heaven to welcome you when you get there because it was you thinking ahead and you invested in people that celebrate when you get there because they came to know Christ as a result of your sacrifices. And Jesus said, those things never go down in value. In fact, he said, I will make those relationships eternal, perfect love, without any of the obstacles that we talked about last week. And then lastly, has your conversion caused you to respond to God's grace by opening your heart and hand to the power that you contain and using it for the benefit of others. I'm going to ask that you would close your eyes for a moment. There comes a moment in every one of our lives where we are confronted with the truth of the grace of God and whether or not that we will approach it open intellectually with curiosity and persistence And today, if you don't know Jesus, I want you to understand that today is your opportunity. Jesus comes not as a taker, but as a giver. And the arguments we often use are, what am I going to have to give up if Jesus comes into my life? Let me tell you what he brings. He brings peace, hope, provision, joy. His nature is full of goodness. He comes as a giver. So if you're here today, there's nobody looking around but me. I'm going to ask that if you're ready to be converted, if you're ready to meet Jesus and have him change your life, I would like you simply just to raise your hand and I'm going to respond by recognizing, yes, ma'am, I agree with you, or yes, sir, I agree with you. I'm not going to embarrass you. And then as we come to the conclusion, I'm going to give you instructions on finding somebody to pray with you about. Yes, ma'am, I agree with you. Are there others as I'm looking around this morning? Today's your day. You say, I'm... I am ready to be converted. I don't want to just know about God. I want to know Him. In the overflows, I'm looking around. Are there any others? Is God knocking on the door of your heart? If you're feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit and you reject Him today, and you don't find Christ, this day will reverberate for eternity as my moment, and I let it pass. Is there anyone this morning? Anyone else? Then I'm going to ask that you would open your eyes and that you would stand with me today. Would my altar workers please prepare themselves and come forward? We believe in prayer at Grace Assembly. We believe that God can do anything. And I recognize that in a group this size that there are those of you that came in today and there are things that have been weighing on your mind and weighing on your heart. And there is a freedom that comes in being able to express that to somebody to pray with you. And I want you to know that those that are standing here this morning know how to pray. They know how to touch God with you. And we want to make that available to you. Frank, would you please come? And so in just a moment, I'm going to have a concluding prayer, but at the end of that prayer, I want those of you that want to talk and fellowship to please go outside so that we can maintain an atmosphere of reverence and prayer here in the sanctuary. And I want to invite you, if you're here today and you need somebody to pray with you for healing in your body, if you need prayer for relationships, if you need 
prayer that, you know what, I need God to open a door of a job, provision, whatever it may be, I want you to know that we are here to pray because we trust God. We've been converted. So, Father, as we approach this day, we know that there are so many things to accomplish, but we ask more than anything that you would allow us everywhere we go to let this pervasive, radical spirit of generosity of Jesus Christ flow through us in every aspect of our life, Lord. Every aspect. May people look at us and say, there must be something about Jesus in you because you can't be that way on your own. And in this spirit of generosity, may we live our lives in such a way that we see the graceful hand of God leading and using us in ways perhaps we never imagined. So Lord, grant to us all a spirit of generosity. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.